0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Michelle Arrow, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Modern History, Politics, and International Relations at Macquarie University in Sydney's North. Michelle is also co-editor of the Australian Historical Association's journal, History Australia. In this episode, Michelle and I speak about her early enthusiasm for modern Australian history and research interests related to popular culture. We also talk about her research and her new book, The Seventies, The Personal, The Political and The Making of Modern Australia, which explores the enormous social changes that shaped modern Australia's identity. We talk about the Royal Commission into Human Relationships and its significant role as primary evidence for Australians shifting Attitudes towards a range of hot topics, equality and women's voices, family, sexuality, abortion and interpersonal relations. Our conversation turns to the 1970s television show, Number 96, and its significant role in reflecting Australia's sexual revolution. Links to some of Michelle's research papers and articles are provided in the show notes. Here's my conversation with Associate Professor Michelle Arrow. So Michelle, I thought we might start off with uh, a background to your undergraduate study, your PhD, um, the the kind of events that led you to to where you are now.
1: Hmm. Okay. I've often thought about what it is that has driven me to do history and to do Australian history in particular. And I think there were a couple of things that I think it was a product of growing up in the 1970s and 80s and when there was a, generally, I think, in Australia, a bigger interest in Australian history. I think one of the things that made me interested in Australian history was that I could sort of see it around me. In my grandparents' house, I could see that they... um, They used to have a drawer in their kitchen where they saved string and they saved plastic bags and, you know, they used to wash them and hang them on the clothesline. And it sort of spoke to
0: wash the plastic bags wash
1: the plastic bags yeah and it was about um being frugal and reusing and keeping everything because they had grown uh, up with nothing
0: that kind of uh depression yeah
1: depression era my grandfather was a swaggy during part of the depression and kind of you know moved around looking for work um you know so they had this it was very deeply ingrained that i could read about that social history and I could sort of see it in my grandparents house and I knew that we'd had relatives who died in World War Two, and I think in the nineteen eighties there's a sort of resurgence in interest in family history and I kind of captured a bit of that bug from my grandparents watching them do their own family history and finding out there were convicts in our family. So there was that sort of family context that kind of made me interested in Australian history. There was also in the 1980s, and if you kind of talk to a lot of people who grew up in that period, they will remember there was a series of historical miniseries that were really social history of 20th century Australia. Well, 19th century too, but a lot of 20th century. So what,
0: what were some of the biggies?
1: So there's one I remember about Cyclone Tracy about the dismissal of the Whitlam government, uh, World War II, Body Line. Um, they were really kind of a greatest hits of sort of 20th century key events and they really made me extremely interested in thinking more about the past and kind of I learned really about, the, about history from the television, you know. Um, and that to me was a really formative sort of experience. And so when I found out that I could do Australian history at university, like the light went on, bing, because in high school we couldn't do it. We didn't really do much Australian history. What do
0: you mean we didn't do it?
1: We did a bit of stuff about explorers. Oh, yes. You know, like I Burke and rem- and I seem Sturt to remember that myself, and, yes. You know, who discovered this river system and who died on this expedition and whatever. But the kind of stuff I wanted to know was 20th century social history. I wanted to know about experiences of the war and the Great Depression. And, you know, I could kind of talk to family about that a little bit, but... I really wanted to find out more. And when I got to Sydney Uni, they were like, you're in luck. It's the first time we'd offered an Australian history course to first-year students. So it used to be that you couldn't do Australian history in first year at Sydney Uni. I like um, all
0: the um, reference to all these restrictions. Like it's yeah. not it's not in the high school I know. curriculum. Well, it not
1: You know, that was a Bob Carr innovation in the 1990s to kind of put compulsory Australian history in the curriculum for high school. And then at university, I think it was sort of seen as an upper-level subject. You know, you didn't do that at first year. So for me, it was like a chance to immerse myself and do a lot of Australian history. And really from there, I just kind of kept wanting to do more. And I think... The benefit of doing undergraduate study um, for me was not just that you learned a lot; you get a broad context from the courses that you did, but that you got your chance to do your own research project. So you could investigate something that was of interest to you. Um, and so doing more of those, and then I think you know, I got enough marks to do honours, and I thought, why not?
0: So what <laughs> it was were you the enrolled? recession?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, like let's do another year. Um, so I was enrolled in a Bachelor of Arts.
0: And then you focused on yeah, the history. Yeah, I, I did
1: English, I did anthropology, I did a few subjects and then I just kind of did more. I did women's studies and then I just did more and more history. And it was the thing where I got, the mark I got for the HSC was enough that like I remember looking it up on the day and my dad said, like I got just enough to enter dentistry at Sydney uni wow. My dad said, you should consider it. And I was like, I don't think so. So, you know.
0: why Why were you not particularly interested in dentistry?
1: I didn't really want to spend my life doing that that was (laughs) looking in people's mouths looking in people's mouths no that's not really what I wanted to do I just really I didn't know I guess I didn't know necessarily where it would lead in the long term and that so in some ways I had made shockingly poor choices because I really didn't have a sort of sense that oh yeah I'll be an academic in 10 years time I thought I might be a journalist
0: oh yeah
1: you know that was sort of where I thought maybe that would be my ambition Maybe but, to be a journalist.
0: So you had that, um, the string and the plastic bags were already speaking to you. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's
0: right. So how did you start to, well, when did your historical voice, is that what you would call it? Like yeah. a kind of When did that start to form? In, yeah. In what year? Probably
1: in my, I got a very, I remember getting a really good mark for the first assignment I ever did.
0: Which was what? What was that on? It
1: was something about... It was researching... It was a historiographical assignment. It was looking at... um... I don't
0: know what that word means.
1: (laughs) So it was basically thinking about how does one historical text relate to some others, you know, sort of what is the conversation that's going on between one author and one kind of thesis or idea, and how does that relate to some other all right Oh, right, like overlaps? Yeah, or kind other of pist- looking at the arguments between historians about a particular idea. And I did quite well in that, and then I did terribly in the next assignment, you know, and that was a bit of a, right. I think all kind of kids looking from the way that I've taught a lot of students do have a problem when they first get to uni is that the things they've done in school that have served them well don't serve them well in university oh yeah there's a moment where it clicks into place but you usually have a a stumble and my stumble was at the end of this sort of first year
0: so you kind of you I still am interested what what was the assignment about Can Um, you remember? The very
1: first one, it was the Hearts thesis, so the Fragment thesis. So what it was, was there was this idea in Australian and American history, this guy who has this idea that colonial societies, the way they are formed depends on the moment when uh the the founding country settles them and it becomes like a fragment of that older society so the comparison was between America and the US and it was saying that America had particular kind of um, qualities and values because when Britain colonized that country it was you know kind of I can't even remember the details of it now oh like you um, like they,
0: they had a spirit of yeah. um, spirit of kind of uh, mind, like getting on with what they wanted to do. I guess that's what it
1: was, but it was kind of like the the main society breaks off and and kind of it's a little closed development of this sort of yeah. idea in a particular place. And it was looking at the way that this where did this thesis Religious really make sense? Or? Yeah. You know, so did this thesis make sense in these two contexts and what had oh, historians yeah. criticized it for? So, you you know, d- so it was a funny little assignment in some ways.
0: And so you'd had this all this early success, but you yeah, were yeah, unable yeah. to repeat that. Yeah, that's right. It didn't so, gotta work out so much. So what did you do?
1: Ah, uh, just kept working, you know, just I was always I think I've never been I'm not the sort of Genius, but I've always been someone who's prepared to work hard. Wow, very you know? so, good
0: attributes.
1: So you know that was that's how I've basically pursued most of these things. And I was always interested, really, in primary documents and primary research is the thing that I'm most excited by and most you know interested in. And so I think the more assignments I did, and I could really demonstrate that I knew how to do primary research, I could find things, and I really enjoyed that part of the process. And I think that's where I started to improve.
0: Yep. So for those of you, or for those of people who are listening, who don't know what primary re- mm. uh, primary research or primary...
1: Yes, sorry, I should what explain that? what that is. Yeah, so primary research for historians. So whenever you're researching a topic, you there's sort of two things that you need to be keeping in mind, or three really, three different aspects. But the primary research... Uh, is the research in the documents or sources that were produced at the time that you're studying. So if you're looking at the Great Depression, you might be looking at newspapers that were written, you know, produced in 1930 or something like that. Uh, The secondary sources are the works that other historians have written about that period. And then another kind of aspect that most historians would take into account is thinking about methodology or theory. So are you a social historian? Are you really interested in what people did in the past? Are you a cultural historian? Are you interested in how people made sense of that past? Are you a labour historian? Are you mainly interested in the kind of relations between, you know, labour and capital? So there's a number of different things that come into play whenever someone's writing a piece of history. But primary research is probably the thing that most people would start with, which is what's, what is left from that period, yeah, little, that we little can read.
0: artifacts or little yeah. pieces of evidence,
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, it could be coins or you know, ancient historians look up you know, um, bits of frescoes or whatever. You know, it's just different kinds of things that are left from the past.
0: I noticed, um, you, your water bottle, orange <laughs> water bottle. I guess this is a bit of a retro thing, um, where it's uh, it's time and yes. it's orange, yes, that's been probably recently produced, but it is referencing something that did occur. Yes. What's What's the bottle about?
1: Okay, so the, the bottle came from the Whitlam Institute, which is set up at the University of Western Sydney and basically to commemorate the life and the work of Gough Whitlam, who was the Labor Prime Minister from 1972 to 1975 in Australia. And its time was probably the most famous political campaign in Australian history. It was really the beginnings of modern political campaigning. Uh, and one of the things that made it modern and different was that the Labor Party conducted focus group research and extensively interviewed ordinary people about their kind of views about the campaign, but also that it produced a lot of merchandise. And so a lot of campaigns before, you might have badges and maybe bumper stickers, posters. The Gough Whitlam campaign in 1972 produced shopping bags, Bumper stickers, t shirts, and famously, Gough Whitlam appeared in an It's Time t shirt. Oh, um, yeah, I think I, know, I remember seeing that photograph. You've probably seen a photo. that photograph. There's a, him and little Patty,
0: who yeah. was a pop singer
1: of the time, wearing a t shirt. And the idea of a politician wearing a t shirt, almost unheard of at this point. So it was kind of a, it was a signal that this was a different kind of campaign and seeking to be a different kind of government and a modern kind of government. And really, uh, because I've been spending the last few years writing about the Whitlam period in the 1970s, it's kind of been a nice little reminder that it sits there. And of course all my students, you know, the ones who know a little bit about the 70s kind of can identify it very immediately that... That's where it's from, and that's what it signifies. Or they ask me about it, so it's kind of a nice little icebreaker when I'm going to teach as well.
0: Mm. And I guess yeah. that um, I have noticed that burnt orange has mm-hmm. come back into fashion.
1: It's a very yeah, it's quite a distinctive color. It's like the color of nineteen seventies Lamonix, you know, like it's, yes, it's got that kind of Brady
0: Bunch um, bench top
1: Tupperware bench tops. Yes. Yeah, it's very. I don't think I could tolerate any more of that color than just the bottle. But you know, for now, it's <laughs> just okay a little just little bottle of...
0: in the environment is <laughs> yes, enough.
1: Exactly exactly
0: and so um when you went on after finishing your undergraduate Mm. study you went on to do a phd can you talk us through what you were studying in that
1: yeah so my uh honors degree my honors year was you did a you did some units and a thesis and my thesis was about um sort of about the figure of the in theater in the sort of 1960s and 1970s. So this very, um, this association of national identity with a particular kind of masculinity was what I was interested in exploring. So the ochre as a figure, if you think about someone like Paul Hogan, he's kind of an ochre of that period. Barry McKenzie, yeah. um, the sort of ochre films are a kind of well-known part of the of sort of 1970s culture. But the theatre is really where it kind of started. And I had been interested in theatre. I'd done a lot of English and drama in my undergraduate study and Australian literature and Australian uh, drama. And so I was kind of curious about, you know, what is it about national identity that, you know, it's always expressed seemingly in Australia through these sort of very masculine and kind of exaggeratedly masculine archetypes. And so the the thesis was about looking at the ochre and also looking at the ways that feminists challenged that figure of the ochre in theatre and created feminist theatre of the 1970s. Wow. So it was a very... Jam-packed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just sort of three chapters uh, kind of looking at that period in the 1970s. And my thinking in relation to the PhD was... You know, I'd just done a course on Australian drama in in English and there were no women playwrights in there at all. I mean, maybe there was one, I think. And I thought, where are the women? There have to be some women playwrights in that history of Australian theatre. And so that was what my PhD was about. Oh,
0: so you went searching and you found some.
1: Yeah, found quite a few. Um, found... Uh, including one who – so Summer of the Seventeenth Doll by Ray Lawler is probably one of the most famous Australian plays before the 1970s. And what I found in my research very early on was that that play had won a contest in 1955, I think, and it had not just won the contest but it came equal first with a play by a woman. But the play by the woman had been almost entirely forgotten and Summer of the Seventeenth Doll is a classic. So it was kind of – that was a nice – beginning, a nice way for me to kind of get into that and kind of think about, well, what does this little moment tell us about Australian culture and history in the 1950s?
0: Just what was the play that was...
1: Yeah, so the play was called The Torrance. It's actually being produced by the Sydney Theatre Company this year, which is the first professional production it's had in Sydney.
0: Um, Wow. Yeah,
1: which is interesting. Good timing. Really good timing. It's interesting. Um, It's been produced professionally once before in Adelaide, um, but really it sort of disappeared without trace. And I kind of argued there are a couple of reasons, partly it's a history play. Um, it's set in the 1890s. But it's set in the 1890s, it centres around the character of a new woman, female journalist. Um, it was by a woman who used to be a member of the Communist Party. So there were a number of reasons, I think, why that didn't sit well in the prevailing cultural mood of mid-1950s Australia, the middle of the Cold War, compared yeah. to some, Summer in the 17th style, which is, again, a play about masculinity, national identity. Um, and actually it's a really great play too. I mean, I think I wouldn't deny that Summer of the Seventeenth Dolls is actually an incredibly dramatic and moving kind of piece of work, whereas The Torrance is a much more talky, um, let's solve a problem through language and cooperation. You know, it doesn't, it's not dramatic in the same way, I think. Um, but, yeah, that was a fascinating little story for me, and I wrote an article for The Good Weekend about that, that little story because I think that kind of is a really interesting thing that we could extract from the thesis. Um, yeah, but that was sort of the starting point. And then it ended up being a thesis that was a lot about women in the Communist Party, in the communist-aligned theatres, little theatres, independent theatre, amateur theatre, you know, um, which all of which kind of not grinds to a halt but it changes in the late 1960s and then, you know, the kind of theatre that I wrote about in my honours thesis starts to emerge and dominate in Australia. So it was sort of a cultural history really, thinking about history of culture.
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So, being a person that grew up in the 1970s, I'm certainly um, aware of all these cultural artefacts of mm-hmm. the 1970s. So, but I think it's great that um, this almost defines what a historian does or a, an academic that studies history they're looking not so much at the items in isolation, they're kind of linking them to really significant movements or things that were happening. Mm. And so um, I understand that you've just finished a a big period of time in researching 1970s in Australia. So could you tell us a a bit more about that research?
1: So yes, so I've just uh, finished a book Which will be out this year, and it's called The 70s: The Personal, The Political, and the Making of Modern Australia. And in some ways, I've been I've written about the 1970s before in relation to history of popular culture. Um, But this book is part of a sort of new turn in my research, which is kind of thinking a little bit more about social movements and social change um, in Australia. So the kind of conceit of the book is that. The 1970s is a time when Australians find new ways to talk about problems and issues that previously would have been considered private. And so the idea of the personal is political is one of the kind of key slogans really of the women's movement in the 1970s. And kind of what that meant was that issues that women had previously or had put up with for a long time in isolation, so... Um, you know, lack of access to birth control, domestic violence, sexual assault, um, lack of equal pay. You know, these were not problems that just faced women individually, but that they were actually produced by a patriarchal society, and that the only way to overcome those problems was to make them political, to recast them as political problems, and to work for solutions to those problems in the public sphere and to make them public and one of the strategies that a lot of activists both in the gay and lesbian movement and in the women's movement did was to talk about private problems publicly and so one of the things that I do in the book is look at moments where women and gay and lesbian activists talked about those private, inverted commas, private problems in public places Um, and the kind of culmination of that sort of strategy, I'm arguing, is a very unique government event that was held in the mid-1970s called the Royal Commission on Human Relationships. And I've been working on this Royal Commission for a while now and, and sort of the first historian to kind of get into the original submissions that people wrote to the commission. But I should step back because you've probably heard Royal Commission on Human Relationships and gone, what is that? That sounds sort of slightly strange. Um, So the Royal Commission on Human Relationships was an attempt by the federal government to investigate a range of issues that were impacting on people's private lives. They were kind of... Initially, it came out of an attempt to work out how many abortions were being conducted each year in Australia. Yeah, I was was wondering
0: what the trigger was. Yeah, there was
1: a parliamentary debate to try and... Uh, make access to abortion in Canberra in the ACT a little bit easier. And the legislation didn't pass because a conscience vote usually means that the parliament got divided in religious lines and all sorts of things and so it didn't get passed. But the idea of a royal commission into abortion, which is what it initially was, they were like, maybe we'll do that, but actually maybe let's make it a little bit politically safer and make it an inquiry into human relationships. Because in the course of the debate about abortion, there was a sort of sense that, well, women don't just have abortions because they don't want to have babies. Maybe they have abortions because they're in violent relationships or they, you know, the whole bunch of things that kind of create those situations. So they kind of decided they would have a royal commission into the family, social, educational, sexual aspects of male and female relationships or human relationships, which is what eventually um, was the official title. So this is potentially enormous and potentially hugely widely encompassing. So so
0: when they have, um, just to get everyone up to speed, when they have a royal commission, they essentially have a topic they want to investigate, yes. and then they call for everyone's opinion. That's
1: right. That's and right. then
0: all these people would have submitted, like, did they fill it out, like, with a pen on a piece of paper and post it yeah. in? Yeah,
1: yeah, they did. So there was, yeah, there's a number of ways you can contribute to a Royal Commission. You can turn up to a public hearing, you can submit a submission, and then, you know, they might want to call you in to talk to you more about it. This Royal Commission, being a very 70s kind of moment, they were really like, we want everybody to contribute. They went on talkback radio, they put ads in the newspaper, they set up tables in shopping centres and ask people to come and talk to them about their experiences. And,
0: and you would have witnessed, like, in your day-to-day life when you were growing up, you yeah. sort of knew that was going on. Yeah.
1: I mean, people probably, you know, were aware that it was going on and, and hearing about it. And under, there were radio ads and, you know, I don't think television ads, but it was very widely publicised. And people wrote in and they wrote about their private life and they wrote about lots of different aspects yeah. what, of their Yeah. What own sort lives. of
0: aspects are- About what it
1: was like being a mother, what it was like being a father, um, about sex education and the lack of sex education in Australian schools. They wrote about um, loneliness, about ageing, disability, what it was like to live with a, a child with a disability and, you know, in terms of accessing services for that. They wrote about abortion, they wrote about domestic violence, they wrote about rape, you know, all of this is in the National Archives. It's there yeah, as this kind of it's archive. It's primary evidence. It's primary evidence. And it's yeah. sort of a really interesting archive of like ordinary people's lives in the mid nineteen seventies. So it's a kind of priceless archive in that way.
0: It's very interesting because it, as you're saying the um the 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 scope of the mm. commission, the mm-hmm. Royal Commission was broadened. Very and so big. it let in all this other exactly information.
1: Yeah. And in some ways that happened deliberately because activists targeted it as a strategy so for example gay and lesbian activists there was no explicit mention that we want to hear from gay and lesbian people but gay and lesbian people wrote submissions and said we deserve to be considered as part of this inquiry because human relationships are our relationships too Um, the catholic church tried to stop some gay organizations from you know making representations so it's a really interesting little microcosm of like all the social change that's going on in this period is sort of It's not all captured in this Royal Commission, but it seemed to me a really great launching point to think about what this question meant to investigate the personal is political, to investigate what happens when, you know, private lives become placed on the public agenda. And so that's really what the book is about. It's kind of thinking through how that transformed Australian politics and culture and society in the 1970s.
0: And what what um, years would be the typical of the... Like, what, what years did the Royal Commission go mm. from and to? Yep.
1: So the Royal Commission starts in 1974. It ends in 1977. So, of course, in the middle of that, the dismissal happens. of yeah. The Whitlam government... Whitlam go- Whitlam is change. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, this Royal Commission in the ways that we've seen more recently, becomes a bit of a political football because, you know, the incoming Liberal government says, oh, we, we don't want to deal with that. We don't want to have anything to do with that. Yeah, what with happened
0: that. with them then? That was kind of like, whoops. Yeah. We've, uh, we've still got to maintain this kind of thing that's happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, I did investigate that because I was kind of curious about what happened because there was 500 recommendations in the final report. Like, that's a lot. <laughs> probably too many, you know, for them to really meaningfully deal with. And a lot of them related to state legislation and state governments. And so it was quite a complicated process by which the government was trying to sort this out. But there's evidence that basically the coalition government just said, let's go slow on this. Let's let it quietly, you know, disappear. They didn't present it to parliament with a debate or any kind of discussion. Um, They just let it kind of slowly die well, in the bureauc- within the bureaucracy over the la- the next sort of few years.
0: But then meanwhile, all these people that would have given their voice, mm. they surely they would have been expecting, well, come yeah. on, let's just see what the outcome of this will be.
1: Yeah. In some ways, I think what happens is the Royal Commission report becomes a really important um, source of evidence for groups who are seeking change in a range of different places. And so at state government level in particular... Um, I've talked to activists who said the Royal Commission was kind of ammunition for us. We could go and say, but the Royal Commission says we should do X, Y and Z.
0: Well, the, the people have spoken.
1: Exactly, yeah. So it becomes a really interesting... It's not a clear-cut story in some ways, but I think it's a really interesting story.
0: And so what do you, do you also incorporate um, elements of, say popular culture that was happening at the time?
1: Yeah. I mean, this book is not so much about popular culture as my pre- my previous book was a history of post-war popular culture. So in some ways I wanted to make sure I wasn't
0: repeating myself
1: too much. But um, but yes, there is stuff about popular culture because if you think about that idea of the personal is political and you're talking about making private issues public, then television is an excellent way to do that. Um, and. Television, exactly. Television, uh, particularly around issues...
0: Now, our, our audience can't see. I held up a, um, a picture, a photo... Uh, of number of, 96.
1: Of number 96. So number 96 is particularly significant and important for its groundbreaking representation of homosexuality. And activists have talked about the way that they felt that Don Finlayson, who was the sort of gay character... Was
0: Played re- by Joe Hashem.
1: Yes, was really important because he was an "Quote unquote" ordinary person. He was not a character who was only known by sexuality. He didn't conform to any of the stereotypes that people were kind of so had long associated with homosexual characters on TV. You're yeah, like a,
0: a Mr Humphrey's type, exactly. Of, uh, sort of limp-wristed,
1: super camp kind of character. He just wasn't like that. And I yeah, think if a you think very about, yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> in sort of gay politics of the 1970s, it was all about, particularly in the early 70s, about appearing ordinary gay men and lesbians are ordinary people just like you and me you know this was the sort of um, dominant message of gay and lesbian politics and I also talk a bit about um, television representations in other ways so um, a famous uh, current affairs program called checkerboard which featured two gay couples and again they were very much about we are ordinary people who just happen to be gay. And I think number 96 is a similar sort of idea.
0: For those people that don't know number 96, it's, um, how would you describe it?
1: Saucy soap opera set in a a block of flats in sort of eastern suburbs of Sydney. Um, It was a weekly, you know, five nights a week kind of um, soap opera, hugely popular, um, different to a lot of Serial drama that had come before, which because it was not about police, it was not set in a country, you know, rural town or a rural area. It was very much a place to investigate issues around contemporary urban life, you know, and and also with a lot of comedy and, you know, it had something for everybody, really. I mean, you know, you talk to people who grew up in that period and they talk about not being allowed to watch it oh, and well, sneaking out to watch it. And now, <laughs> um, I'm,
0: I'm the youngest of six children and so I remember that it was almost like a family event and it was kind of like debated whether the, the youngest one should <laughs> be allowed to watch it, but it was kind of because of the family dynamics, it would be impossible... Yes. Because the older, my older brothers and sisters, there was no way it wasn't going to be watched. Yes. And so I do remember kind of, you know, uh, being introduced to some of the concepts and characters (laughs) quite early on and thinking, wow, this is, and then going to school. Yes. And then other kids would be, no, there's no way that is even watched in our house. Yeah. Yeah, it's
1: kind of racy and it was a bit, um, I mean, very much a part of permissive, you know permissive culture in the 1970s you know when we look back now at the 1970s there are still some aspects of it that what's permissive culture yeah well permissive the permissive society was the idea of the 1970s that it was sort of about um, rather than being private and uh, keeping sexuality sort of bracketed off from public life that Permissiveness was all about sort of letting it all hang out. And really, what that meant in practice was that you got to see a lot more women, you know, with their clothes off in public places. But also things like the Clio Centerfold, you know, so oh, Clio yes. magazine had a male centerfold. Yes. So, a magazine for women, famously, with this male centerfold. So, much more openness about sex. In limited ways, of course, you know, but being much more open about sex, um, open about uh, nudity, you know, talking more about sex. There were more magazines about sex in the 1970s So not just Playboy and Cleo with their centrefolds, but magazines like Forum, which were sort of about educating the public about sex. So a much more openness about sexuality in the 1970s, and and sort of that gets bracketed off now as talking about the sort of permissive society or permissive culture in the 1970s.
0: So what are the biggies, like, in terms of the personal and the political Mm. and the making of modern Australia? Mm. You know, sex was a big thing Mm. and identity, Mm. uh, gender politics, any other um, aspects?
1: well, one of the things that I think is interesting and they hadn't really been dealt with much in terms of thinking about this period. We know a lot about the women's movement in this period. We know a lot about gay and lesbian activism in this period. We're less clear, I think, about the backlash to those movements. And one of the things I really wanted to do in the book was to kind of trace the ways that, while on the one hand the Labor government was very... uh, was more content, I think, to align themselves with these movements and try to achieve things for women and try and achieve some kind of you know, law reform and legislative change for gays and lesbians, that by the mid to late 1970s, you have seen the emergence of a backlash to these movements and a a backlash that is often using the kinds of language that the progressive social movements are using. So in the mid-1970s, you see women's organisations that are anti-feminist explicitly forming. So there's one called the Women's Action Alliance and there's also probably a bit better known, although they were a smaller group, Women Who Want to Be Women. (laughs) <laughs> and so these groups are echoing what's going on in the United States, you know, so in the US there's a real conservative revolution and, and a lot of women are getting active, politically active to stop abortion rights, to stop the Equal Rights Amendment. In Australia, they're connected to the Liberal Party, they're trying to wind back the sorts of changes that... Um, the Labor government made in relation to childcare provision and sort of other things that were aimed at assisting women into the workforce, into public life, trying to wind back divorce reform. You know, so there's that's the sort of aspect of this story that doesn't get written about so much. And so I wanted to really kind of investigate, well, if you make the personal political, you don't have control over whose personal is the political you know like over the ways that women on the conservative side of politics also said I'm a wife and mother I think I my rights need to be you know respected to be a wife and mother and I want tax concessions so that I can stay at home with my child and all of those kinds of things so in some ways they're all making claims on the government for different things but you know, we kind of think that women getting involved in politics is always going to result in progressive change. And that is not, of course, the case. Really, by the early 1980s, those women had sort of disappeared as a anti-feminist voice, they become anti-abortion activists or they become anti-sex education, you know, so they move into other things. But I think what's interesting is that in the late 1970s they're using the language of feminism. They're saying, we are the next step of feminism. Is
0: that a thing that happens, like if you've got a big movement or a lot of change, and then Mm. do you naturally tend to get this kind of reaction to kind of sort of stop the change or something and then it it peter out? I think
1: that's probably right, but I think there was also something distinctive about these this particular moment because it was a there was a change of government um, the government was able to say well all that feminist reform that you had that's not really representing what all women want you know we we conservative women we know what women really want and because they had access to government power and they had access to sort of that influence they were able to get more influence than perhaps they might otherwise have had they're actually quite a small group I think but because they were able to access government, They were able to get more influence than they otherwise might have. So I think that partly this is about... um, There is always going to be, I think, backlash to social movements, progressive social movements, but I think also this one is quite distinctive because they were able to influence the government a little more than they might have otherwise been able to do.
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So we're in 2019. Uh, families are watching less television together. Uh, Netflix and other very fragmented viewing patterns. How does this kind of relate to some of some of the ideas you you mm. brought up earlier about um, event television or mm. you know hi- telling history through a, a miniseries, for example?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to me because I think we don't quite know yet what the long-term effects of that are. I think as as someone who came of age in an era where we learned a lot of our history through TV and we learned it alongside everyone else. You know, I remember watching the miniseries Vietnam and it went over four nights or five nights or something like that and watching it every night you know, like there was no other way to watch it. You had to watch it. You had to sit down and watch it when it was on because you couldn't catch up on it later or you couldn't rent it on DVD or video or whatever it was. You know, so the idea of learning something and watching it alongside everybody else and watching it with your whole family, you know, being able to then go, what does my dad think of that? What does my mum think of that? You know, kind of, it was a bit of an education in itself, you know, watching how they reacted to the things that were on screen. In 2019, when we watch TV, we're more likely as not, you know watching I might be watching something in one room my partner might be watching something else in another room and my child is on Minecraft or something on the iPad you know so the idea of a fragmented it's very much a fragmented viewing experience and I do think that then we lose something with that and I am concerned I think the the rise of streaming you know they don't they're not bound by the same rules about local content that Yeah, that's right. That is a thing. And I mean, really, in the 1980s, the reason why we got so much Australian history on TV was not because the networks were doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, it's because there were tax concessions and because there was a requirement to broadcast a certain amount of Australian television. Quota type. Exactly. And, you know, when television first began in Australia, there were no quotas for local content. And as a result, there was like 2 or 3% of local content on television in the very (laughs) early years, you know. Um, I think we probably need local quotas for. Netflix and those kinds of services so that they are compelled to produce some kind of Australian material. Um, It does also place a really heavy burden on the national broadcasters on SBS and the ABC because the commercial networks are really I think moving more towards reality television and those other kinds of genres rather than scripted TV and frankly some of those programs that they I mean you know, the biopic model, which seems to be the main way now that commercial networks oh, are yes. engaging with history. The Molly Meldrum, the Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, Newton what John. do you think
0: of those? I've watched um, most of those. Yeah. The, the Chappelle Corby one I thought was really good. Yeah, However, I did see the
1: Chappelle Corby one. Some
0: of those other offerings are a little bit... Um, they
1: seem like they've been, you know, the script has gone through on the first draft and then that's how it's all... You know, that they, they seem a little hastily produced and not made with a lot of... Uh, imagination I think you know and that's partly the limitations of the biographical genre if you're telling a story of one person it's very hard to avoid the oh this is the moment where they're going to be discovered this is the moment where they you know like there are certain cliches I think that we associate narrative with
0: narrative kind of um, events
1: yeah that- more so than I think with other kinds of historical. Um, forms. And I think documentary is probably moving much more to the preoccupation of a kind of older, maybe male demographic, although I think there are some interesting moves in, you know, the, the Hawke documentary that was made recently, I thought, did quite a good job of trying to bring in people who might not really know that story. You know, like for a lot of people, Bob Hawke is history. They didn't, they didn't live through that period of his leadership and, and stuff like that. So I am concerned because I do feel like history is it's super important for us to kind of understand our history and television is often a very palatable way to make that history understandable and entertaining for a large audience and I think documentary doesn't quite do it in the same way that drama does you know and I feel like those days of that big mini-series event TV I do think they probably did help people understand that history was not just about great men and events and i think you know there's a bit of a lack of historical literacy in relation to understanding our history beyond military history i mean one of the interesting things about the gallipoli centenary a few years ago was that there were a whole bunch of miniseries made for that and often quite beautifully made and very well made none of them rated very well.
0: And what do you think of things like the the Gallipoli, the, the, the kind of live action event, or I can't think of what it was called. Oh,
1: Camp Gallipoli. Was yeah. that the one where they Something, did a, like a, it was a li- it like, was a like a an event where you thing. could, yes. Look, I think, well, one of the things that was interesting about the Camp Gallipoli event was that it was, it, it didn't work. It, it, it was not people weren't attracted to it. It wasn't very right. popular. And so I think there is a sort of resistance to the commercialisation of, of Anzac and Gallipoli that you saw a play there because I think people were like, mm, maybe do we really think that this is replicating the experience of the Gallipoli soldiers going and camping out in the showground? or You know, it seemed a little bit crass perhaps.
0: Constructed.
1: Yes. Um, you know, but I, I think um, the lack of interest in those television productions really intrigued me because i i thought they would all rate their socks off i thought they'd all do really well um but i wonder if it's a bit of people want to find out about other aspects of our history now we've had four years of world war one commemoration maybe it's time to move on to something else because i do think one of the things about that social history those the television programs in the 1980s were all about ordinary people's experiences of a lot of different kinds of historical events not just war and I think it's really important for us to kind of think about all aspects of our history not just war because to be honest a lot of people don't have that family connection to military history they don't necessarily make those connections in a you know an immediate and obvious way for example most migrants who came here after World War II don't relate to that Anzac story in the way that people may have in the 1970s or 60s.
0: I guess it is the complexities of um, how a a nation Mm. identifies itself, Mm. you know, what sort of, what are the big things that shape that, that story or the identity of what Australia is.
1: Yes, and, you know, the way that that story's been told for many years now is war's been the most important thing, war was the most important thing. When actually, if you ask a lot of different people, they might say, well, post-war migration was actually the most important thing that shaped 20th century history or, you know, universal suffrage or the 1967 referendum, you know. it brings um, in
0: the kind of concept of a voice when you yeah. don't have that voice or, like you were saying, the, um, the different people that had access to the, the politics or mm. the, the systems, mm. that then gives them a, a kind of um, a leg up in, yeah. in telling their, their side of the story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think, you know, um, someone like John Howard, has he was Prime Minister for a long time. He really did have an opportunity to sort of shape the way that he thought our national story should be told um, and, and understood, you know, the way that what we should understand are the most important events of, of 20th century Australia. But I think we shouldn't just let one leader decide what is the most important, you know, events of our history. We should be thinking about. There are lots of different events that are important, and lots of things that have shaped our understanding of of the of twentieth century Australia or twenty first century Australia. I mean, at the moment we have um, the prime minister funding a reenactment of Cooks. Well, it's a reenactment in inverted commas because it's a voyage that Cook never undertook um, <laughs> to go round Australia. It's like that was Flinders. Flinders went around Australia. Cook didn't do that. Don't
0: bore me with the details. Yeah, don't
1: bore me with the details, but it is almost like someone on. That's
0: quite a nice visual, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. The visual, the, the kind of map of Australia with yeah. the voyage around it. Yeah, yeah, so, that seems
1: like a good idea. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're doing it so that everyone can see the ship or something, but someone described it on the radio yesterday, a historian, as a remix of Cook's voyage.
0: Well, isn't that the the era that we're in, this sort of idea of remixing?
1: Oh, look, that's why I think in some ways it's sort of a perfect uh, encapsulation of the current government's attitude to history. It's like it's the vibe, it's the general idea that we want people to kind of get into, you know, if you're a historian kind of nitpicking on the details, that's not really, you know, you're not really kind of keeping in with the vibe of this thing, which is that it's just going to be a general celebration of Cook. Um, You know, so it's, I think there is a kind of issue with historical literacy, even though... We all get taught about Captain Cook at school. We all, well, I went know. to
0: James Cook Boys High School. See, there
1: you go. A whole know. high
0: school named after him.
1: Yeah, there's lots of, look, they make a lot of documentaries about Cook. We all sort of, you know, lots of books about him, all of those things. And yet when the government announces they're going to reenact the voyage, they get it wrong. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> yeah, it's quite curious as, a,
1: as yeah. a kind of a thing,
0: an event, an aim.
1: Yeah, and so that's why I sort of feel like, you know, as a historian who looks a lot about at the ways that, we consume history in the public and consume history in sort of popular culture, I feel like there's still some really interesting things to be done there, you know, to kind of understand what does it mean to, you know, for example, create a recreation of Cook's Voyage that doesn't follow the path, Mm. you know, what does that mean? Like that's really interesting to me, like why have they done it that way? It's not just a mistake, it's like there's something else going on there about the way that we remember, about what that history means to the Prime Minister in the present moment, to celebrate a bicentenary in this supposedly unifying moment. Let's put aside the meanings of that voyage for Indigenous people. You know, I mean, it's a really fascinating kind of little thought bubble.
0: Yeah, to tease out and analyse it a little bit more deeply.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think history, you know, it was interesting. Morrison talked about, he said, oh, you know, um, if you want to just talk about what Cook did wrong, everyone makes mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know it's 250 years ago and it's like well that's what historians Give do a break. <laughs> you know like that's we we spend our whole careers kind of thinking about those mistakes or achievements or whatever but also to think about what it means to think about that now like why commemorate now what does it mean to commemorate it now what are the politics of doing that now what does it forget what does it remember and then what how does that relate to Australia in 2019 I mean I think we're all debating the meaning of Australia Day we do that every year now
0: yeah that is another big big topic on on um, everyone's um mind.
1: Yeah and I think it I mean I I feel like it's a shame that historians only ever get asked about what they think about contemporary commemoration and all those things on Anzac Day and Australia Day that's really the sort of two main days because that does sort of define the terms of the debate but I think you know it is interesting to think about 20 years ago or maybe 40 years ago now People weren't really debating that. You know, It's from 1988 onwards it became a really big issue and, I mean, to the point now where people are saying we should change the date, we shouldn't, you know, commemorate this day on this, you know, um, this. we shouldn't celebrate this day, we should maybe commemorate it some other time. So it's, it's fascinating to me how we think history is stable and it's it actually very moves all the time. It moves all the time. And that's fascinating to me to watch all of that and watch how that unfolds.
0: And um, now... Well, just thinking back to some of the stuff you said Mm. earlier about drama and television what what is what are your thoughts on all these reality shows for example married at first sight as a thing they're highly popular shows they're they're kind of uh, that model of production is really Mm. popular and people are watching it do you think as a historical kind of document is that worth anything like it's sure it's what people are watching. It's sort of valid on that level, but yes. does it give us any sort of insight into what the Australian public or population are thinking or feeling, or is it just so highly constructed that mm. it's actually something something other than reliable evidence of anything?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Look, when my previous book, I wrote a bit about Big Brother, and what was interesting about looking at Big Brother because I. I confess, I watched the first series of Big Brother, and so I was I. kind of fascinated and like intrigued, and really invested in it. By the end of it, you know, um, what's interesting about Big Brother is the the way the producers talked about. We wanted to, we knew we were competing with Home and Away, so we needed to make it like that. We needed to make it bright and sunny, people in their swimming costumes, um, lots of drama, lots of interaction, and. It's very different, the Australian Big Brother, it was very different to the British one or the American one. And I think probably something like Married at First Sight would give you insight into the ways that Australians think about relationships, gender, in 2018 or 2019. Um... I'd be curious if there are other variants of it that you could compare it to, because I suspect they would probably play out slightly differently in different national contexts. I think one of the things that's also interesting about it is that, you know, the the questions around, I mean, um, during the marriage equality debate that, you know, it became a, a bit of a punching bag because people are like, hang on, you can get married, in inverted commas, <laughs> on this show without ever having met the person yeah, like and the- yet people who've been in very long-term relationships are unable to marry simply because, you know, they're in gay relationships. Yeah,
0: those two concepts sit very interestingly yeah. side by side. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And the sort of hypocrisy of that, which, of course, we've seen play out many, many times, you know, in the relation to the, the um, marriage equality debate, the people that were the biggest opponents of it are also the biggest hypocrites <laughs> in relation to their own relationships. Um, so, yeah, I think probably in, you know, five or ten years' time, if if the program still exists in a form that people can watch it online, um, I think it will probably tell us something about... Well, also, it also tells us something about celebrity and I think that that's possibly a more global and transnational phenomenon these days. Yeah, because you know, we are... about ideas of celebrity and those people... Clearly you don't sign up to go on that show because you're the shy, retiring type who wants to re- retain their private life. You want to be an Instagram influencer or you want to be a you know, um, public figure in some way. Um, so it tells us something about celebrity and... Sort of, you know, the ways that people are seeking to make money out of, you know, monetize their celebrity in this.
0: Yeah, we are moment. in that kind of yeah. era of, of celebrity, uh, Instagram, global. Exactly. Is that something that you would, um, that interests you in terms of moving f- into the future? Like, or is that out of the scope of where you want to be
1: placed? Um, I'm curious. Like, one of the things that has that has emerged towards the end of this project that I've been working on in the 1970s and the Royal Commission is that something that I had sort of thought initially was part of Whitlam and part of a Whitlam era kind of social progressive change actually was happening in a lot of other places. So other countries were having Royal Commissions into the status of women or status of women inquiries... Um, dealing with similar kinds of questions and engaging the public in similar sorts of ways. And so I'm kind of interested in thinking about something that I thought was a distinctive national phenomenon, was actually probably part of a broader transnational phenomenon, something that's going on in other countries, and talking to some other scholars in other places. So that's possibly another step. I'm also really interested in this moment of, you know, the ways that we all learned history from television and thinking about recuperating a lot of those historical dramas and miniseries and writing about those perhaps before they you know one of the issues about researching television is that it's actually very poorly preserved and the institutions that are funded to preserve television are actually really badly funded underfunded and I'm really keen to kind of engage with that and to try and perhaps work on some of those miniseries perhaps before they get lost actually.
0: Yeah because it is I'd heard it's heartbreaking almost with a lot of Number 96 episodes were just mm. simply taped over. Yeah,
1: they're gone. And you know? they're gone. Yeah. And you know, some of these miniseries are on YouTube, but they're very hard to access in other ways. And so it's kind of astonishing to me how poorly our television is archived. When you think about how important TV has been to our sense of cultural identity and our everyday lives, the fact that it is so hard to access. You can go to a library and read a lot of, you know, great works of Australian literature very easily. It's much harder to find you know, television, even from the nineteen nineties or two thousands, you know, in a very straightforward way. Yeah,
0: when when I went uh, a few years ago, now I went to New York and mm. there was a museum I went yes. to, and you, you basically just um, requested an item, and then they y- you could view it. Yes, it was all like a media television and media yeah. library or something.
1: We have the National Film and Sound Archive, and they do amazing work, particularly um, making some works available online, and they you know they curate exhibitions and things like that but you know they're under resourced they don't have the money that they need to preserve all of the you know um, productions that they have on tape and so that's a pretty urgent question I think is like are we going to let this history disappear
0: yeah and as you were saying with the um, the, the idea of primary evidence or um, primary sources yeah. and w- once that primary source is lost then it's a big chunk of history that's exactly. compromised
1: yeah absolutely you know I mean if you think about trying to write about the history of 2019 without television. Like, how could you do it? You know, you need it. Like, you need some of that material there. So I think that's a really important question for historians.
0: In this episode, I chatted with Michelle Arrow, who is an Associate Professor in the Department of Modern History, Politics and International Relations at Macquarie University. You can find out more information about this episode including links to various research papers and articles, in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.